This is our series that we're into in Romans chapter 6 through 8, Wanted Dead and Alive, as I invite you to take your Bibles, if you have one, and find Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. We'll pick it up in verse 15. That's where we left off last week. And this is a very appropriate theme to start a brand new year on. We're talking about the doctrine of sanctification. And we'll talk again about that, what it means, growing in Christ, this progressive thing that takes place at the point of salvation and throughout our lives. We pick it up in verse 15 now, and we'll sort of review after the, in, in a moment, but it says, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? This is a rhetorical question. Certainly not. Some of your old versions say, God forbid. That's not the literal translation, but it captures the spirit of it. Do you not know that if you present yourselves as any, uh, to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching, that form of teaching to which you were committed or delivered. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members, we talked about that, that last, the members is your body or your body parts. Present your body parts as slaves to righteousness, leading to, and there's our theme, sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is, say it. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hallelujah. Back in the middle 60s, a chimpanzee was delivered over to research in the United States, and he, or she, eventually, Wasso was her name, eventually ended up at the University of Oklahoma where a number of very humane experiments were done on her over a period of several years. In fact, Wasso was given a wonderful environment to live in, albeit incarcerated, And she learned 140 signs, 140. She was so impressive, except over the period of time, the scientists basically realized she was basically mimicking those signs. It wasn't really uh, conceptualizing. She wasn't thinking for herself. But there was a time where she thought 
they thought rather she was ready to conceptualize. She was ready to put some of these signs that she had learned and form her own thought. And, and the staff at this research center were so excited. One of them was heard saying, Wasso is about to share her own heart. And she signed, for the first time, she signed something for herself. She said, let me out. And she said it repeatedly. Now, if even a well-cared-for chimpanzee longs for freedom, the freedom of the jungle... How much more those who are created in the image and likeness of God long for freedom, freedom from that which is enslaving you. Some of you are just flat out enslaved in sin. You're separated from God. And some of you have laid claim to Jesus, but you've fallen back into some life-dominating sin. That's why we need to be sanctified. Sanctification begins at the point of salvation. The word means to be set apart. It is both an act and a process by which God continually throughout life and by whatever means he deems necessary brings us closer and closer and closer to his son. He wants us to be conformed to his image and we are conformed to his image as we behold his image. Remember we talked about that last week. If you're, if you're beholding as somebody, even a good person that you're comparing yourself to, you can't rise above that. But if you behold the image of Jesus, you become transformed from one level of glory to the next. That's what the scripture says. And so we said last week that our sanctification is directly connected to our identification, namely with Jesus, in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And the first 14 verses talk about that. If, you, if, Christ, if we died with Christ, we're dead. We've been buried. We've been resurrected. That's all past tense. You are dead to sin. So God wants us dead and alive. We looked at those three verbs last week in the first 14 verses. No, reckon, yield. Know what has happened to you. If indeed it has happened to you and you placed your faith in Jesus, understand the ramifications of salvation. Study, memorize, meditate, Ephesians chapter 1 particularly. It'll just lay out just a whole plethora of things that take place at the moment you were saved. Know this, and then reckon or count this as yours. This is a true name it and claim it moment. Your identity in Christ. And then yield or present yourself. Once and for all, we use the analogy of marriage, if you, if you please. I do. I will. Doesn't mean there aren't going to be struggles. There aren't going to be pitfalls. There aren't going to be all kinds of issues in your life and in your marriage. But you are committed until what? That do us part. Perhaps the biggest lie in the American dream is that you can control your own destiny. 
we had two guys in our cell group this last week who humbly confessed. It was really cool. The, the sin of self-reliance. The sin of self-reliance. Conservative talk show hosts would say, oh, sin? That's no sin. That's what this country was built on. Rugged individualism. You can do it yourself. You don't need anybody else coming in there and helping you out. You can do it. And I get the point. And while many of us would agree under normal circumstances, you ought not to be dependent upon the government, that very state of thinking smacks of pride. Did you fight for the political freedom that you enjoy? Now, some of you are fighting and have fought to retain it, but you probably didn't fight it. It was probably given to you, was it not? Upon birth, granted to you. And, and that, that very thought should humble all of us, right? Not just politically, but the analogy spiritually. Because Paul, in this passage of Scripture, is teaching us the doctrine of the sanctified life. What, what are the components, the internal components, that give birth to the external actions? And, and in it, he sees fit, in this passage I just read, he has seen fit to correct bad thinking. Along the way, and in particular in the area of freedom. For instance, grace does not give us a license to sin. It gives us power to obey. He says, should we continue in sin? He says, "What? When? are we to sin because we're not under the law but under grace? No way. By no means. God forbid. The Christian martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it like this, cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. There's nothing cheap about the grace of God. This is what Paul meant when he said to Titus, the grace of God that brings salvation, it's appeared to all men. And it teaches us that denying, saying no to ungodliness and worldly lust, that we should live soberly and righteously and godly in this present generation that we're living in. And it says that God, who has redeemed us, has set apart set us apart to be zealous for good works. That's all what grace does. That's powerful stuff. When I am certain that grace has worked into somebody's life that has laid claim to Christ, then I don't have to come to them and say, now here's 15 things you ought to do that are pretty contrary to your life right now. No, we get into God's word and we let truth begin and grace intermingling with truth change that life. I sat with a couple many months ago in my office who had trusted Christ as Savior and they were were genuine, they were sincere and they were living together. And we were moving right along. I never said a word about them living together but they were studying the word. We came back together one day and I said, so what has God taught you in the last week since we've, we've been studying? And... The gal looked at the guy, the guy looked at the gal, and they looked back at me and they said, we're thinking maybe it's not a good idea to be living together. Good, good, that's good. Where'd you come up with that? 
Well, they came up with it by the grace of God through the word of God. That's how. Now, if I were preaching this message in Australia, I would title it, Living Down Under. That makes sense, doesn't it? Well, look how he describes grace. You're not under the law, but what? Say it. He says it twice. He said in verse 14, For sin will not have dominion over you since you're not under the law, but under grace. And he says it again in verse 15. The term under usually has a negative connotation, doesn't it? He's under the weather. They're doing okay under the circumstances. And if you're under the law, that means you're having to answer And some of you are. You're still living under the law. You're not in grace. You're living under the law. And if you're living under the law, that means you have to answer to its impossible demands. Because you can't keep all those laws. Not perfectly, anyway. Jesus did. Thank you very much. That's why we love him. That's why we trust him. So Paul actually pictured this for us. At times when circumstances are unbearable, and you're familiar with the passage, I'm sure, where he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he says, my grace is sufficient. Now notice the subject here is grace. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your what? Therefore I'll boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses. Now watch this. So that the power of Christ, what is grace is being... The word power is being used as a virtual synonym for grace in that verse. Now, we know what grace, it's, it's a multifaceted word. It's, it's, we're saved by the undeserved pleasure of God, right? We don't deserve it. But in life, in the sanctified life, grace is power upon us. We are under that power. And that's a good place to be. So in a sense... God's grace is his power resting upon the believer. He saves us from sin and empowers the follower of Jesus Christ to endure, in some cases, incredible circumstances. And not just bear up, but bless God and rejoice in the circumstances. This is an amazing thing. One of the great problems of this generation is Christians doing whatever they can by hook and by crook to get out from underneath their circumstances, when in reality they need to rest in the power, the grace of God. Grace is not a license to sin because you've received Christ as your Savior. That doesn't mean you're just, not, we don't, we're not antinomian. We don't believe that there, there is the law of Christ that we're living under. It is power. To obey God. Here's another misnomer Paul wants to throw out. Total freedom is an illusion. We all serve someone, right? Verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, watch this, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death, obedience, which leads to righteousness. When the prodigal son ran away, he did so in order to express his desire for what? Freedom. After all, he wasn't the firstborn. But in the end, he ends up serving slavishly someone else in a foreign land 
feeding animals that were repugnant to him. All because he bought into the illusion of total freedom. And then some. There's a, there are many reasons, many lessons in the story of the prodigal son, or sons, if you please. But not the least of which is the illusion of ultimate personal freedom. Even Bob Dylan, back in the 70s, the rock icon, got it right with his song that he sung. You gotta serve somebody. And that's exactly what this text says, doesn't it? Don't you know that to whom you present or yield yourself as servants or slaves to obey, his servants you are, whom you obey. Whether sin that leads to death or obedience that leads to righteousness. So don't miss that. Back in World War II, uh, Switzerland being just south of Germany, it was the place to go. It was the neutral country. They weren't for the Allies, they weren't for the Axis, they were, they, they were neutral. And so if you were a Jew or a political dissident, you were making your way to Switzerland. And so many of us would like to have a Switzerland in our life. We'd like that neutral ground. I don't want to be for it, I don't want to be against it, just, you know, just, just, you know, just, you know, just kind of get through life. But the Bible doesn't give us that option. All of us will serve someone will serve something. And Jesus himself affirms that there's no neutral ground. Remember what he said? He said, I tell you the solemn truth. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Right now, some of you are contemplating sin. Indeed, you are living in it. You're contemplating some sexual sin. You're contemplating some covetous, some form of covetousness. Some of you are stealing. Some of you are, have allowed some idol to just take over your life. My son is going to preach in a little church up north of here in an hour or two, and he was telling me the other day that he, as an illustration, he said, you know, he goes, you know, you know before he was really walking with God, he was, he was a big Office fan. And he said, you know, Daddy, he says, I, I was listening to the Office, I'd watch the Office for like two or three hours a night. And then I'd sit there and relive the parts of the Office in my mind, you know, and scenes from it. This is just slavery is what it is. And some of you are, you're slaves to your TVs. Your college team that you follow. Mine finally lost yesterday. I have to go buy a new TV tomorrow, but I'm, that's not true. That's the question, though. What happens to you when they lose? It's not what happens to them. It's what happens to you. If that's the case, you're a slave to whatever sin that is. You need to be free. Temptation and even falling into sin for the Christian never means you have to stay there. There's an old Chinese proverb that says, if, you, if you, you don't drown by falling in water, you drown by staying there. Okay, so total freedom is, a, is an illusion. Everyone's got to serve somebody. Here's the third one. True freedom is not total freedom. It's the freedom to serve a loving master. That's what it is. Now, Christians are free people. Some of you are probably thinking, well, didn't Jesus say we're free? Yes, he did. The truth shall make you 
Paul said, stand fast in the liberty for which Christ has made you free. Absolutely. And we're going to get to that in Romans chapter 8 and verse 2 where he says, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and death. Notice what we're free from. The law of sin and death. We're free from sin. We're free from death. Hallelujah. We're not free to live for ourselves, but for the one who freed us from ourselves and from everything else that was binding us. It's a, it's a freedom. It's a humble, grateful life. Constantly thanking God for your deliverance. So if the Son sets you free, Jesus said, you will be free indeed. But the scripture is, is replete with reminders that we are not our own. The famous 100th Psalm says, Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who, have made us, who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people. We're the sheep of his pasture. Isaiah put it like this. He said, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. And then perhaps the more well-known verse in 1 Corinthians 6 where Paul says, you are not your own. Just let's say that together. You are not your own. You've been bought with a price. He says in the passage here that in verse 17, he says, but thanks be to God that when you were once slaves to sin, you became obedient from the heart to that standard of teaching that was to which you were committed or delivered to you. Obedient from the heart. You, had a, you, you obeyed wholeheartedly. That's the idea here. This is the idea behind repentance. To repent means to change the way you think. And when your heart is changed, everything else starts changing. The standard, or the, that word standard means impression or form of teaching. It's the gospel. That's the gospel that you received from the heart. And it was committed. That means, that word committed means to be handed over. That's important. It means it was handed over to you. You didn't go get it. It was given to you. That doesn't sound like rugged individualism to me. That sounds like somebody helped me out in this deal. Right? If I'm dead in my trespasses and sins, I can't save myself. All I can do is open up my heart to the God who will. Right? And he's, in fact, the, 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 the phrase committed is, means, to, as it means to be delivered, it means to be handed over. I don't like to do this very often, but the voice in the original is passive. That's important because that means something outside of me was acting upon me. I didn't do this on my own. And, we're, and what are we set free from? Anyway, verse 18, he says, well, he's, and having been set free from sin, you become Slaves of righteousness. That doesn't sound like something would come out of Joel Olstein's uh, mouth. You're a slave of righteousness. <laughs> but that's what the scripture says. The picture here is, is of Jesus who's, who goes into the slave market where you and I are, are, are sinners and we're trapped, and he buys us. And he hands, us, he hands us over 
to freedom to serve him. We have a new master to serve, to love back, and to please in our lives. We're like the indentured servant in the Old Testament. Remember, on on the year of personal jubilee, he could go free if he was a slave, but if he loved his master, he could say, he could go before the, the magistrates and say, I love my master. Give me an earring. And that's basically what they did. They they just put a hole in his ear, put a ring that represented his endearment. Not his enslavement, but his endearment to his master. And that's where we should be. We are always under authority. It just depends on who you're going to serve. Don't miss it. This is, it's this very teaching, this very doctrine that has delivered you. And then in verse 19, when he says, I'm speaking in human terms, he says, I mean, I'm just, he's using an illustration here, the illustration of slavery. But there is a very insightful note about sin, and everyone needs to take note of this. Look what he says in verse 19. He says, for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, here's the insight, lawlessness leading to more lawlessness. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. Here's the point. Part of the nature of sin is that it begets more sin. Sin if it is allowed to master you, has a tendency, now listen to this, to break down our wills, our wills, to resist it. That's what, I think it was, was it Voltaire who said, sin is a vice of such awful mean that to be hated is but to be seen, but seen too oft, familiar with face. At first we endure, then pity then embrace. That's the breaking down of the will. And when you give in to lawlessness, it gives birth to more lawlessness. That's the nature of sin. But it's also the nature of righteousness. That's the, that's the positive point of this. You live for Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean there isn't more temptation. It doesn't mean there won't be struggles. But it does mean you are paving a way towards more righteousness. Not, not your standing with God. That's fixed when you trust Christ. But the life that's sanctified, that growing in Christ thing that all of us are supposed to be a part of. One more point. Your past was never meant to be forgotten. It was meant to be a reminder of the mercy of God in your life. And I'm referring to the next verses. Now look at verse 20. He says, when you were slaves of sin, when you were, past tense, you were free in regard to rights. You can do anything that would please God. And you can't do anything. It doesn't matter how nice you are. That's great, man to man, person to person. But you will never please God with your own personal self-righteousness. He says, verse 20, what fruit were you getting from the things of which you are now what? You're ashamed of them now. Those things lead to death. When Paul said in Philippians, forgetting those things which are behind, he was not suggesting that we all do some mental gymnastic. You know, where we go in and somebody erases everything in our brain. What he was saying is, 
Move on. You're in Christ. Move on. Stop stewing on the past. And certainly don't relive those dark crevices of your past. That would be wrong. It is a shame to speak of those things which are done in secret. Have you ever read that? I was, I was baptizing a guy several years ago, and we didn't really prep him very much for it. We thought he was converted. He, in the baptismal, he not only embarrassed himself, he embarrassed the entire church with the stuff that was coming out of his... I mean, it got so bad, I wanted to baptize him before the time just to keep him under the water. Yet sometimes it is good to remember what you have been delivered from. To remind yourself constantly that you are a vessel of God's mercy, plain and simple. I mean, how can I be thankful for what God has done if my gratitude has no premise? Right? And Paul certainly had no problem in his testimonies constantly talking about his life. Pre-Christ. And verse 22 It says, but now that you have been set free from sin and become slaves to God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and, in its end, eternal life. When you remember that, constantly remember that you are a vessel of mercy, that will temper your excitement over the fruitful things God is producing in your life, and you will be, it will keep you from comparing yourself to other people and seeing yourself as you know, so much arrived. But I don't want you to miss this wonderful conclusion. He says, again in verse 22, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. I love this. Sanctification... Is, just leave that up there for a moment. Just stare at it. Sanctification and its end, eternal life. That's glorification, right? Sanctification is hard, right? It can be hard. It can be very difficult. And God chooses his means by which we are sanctified. It might just be an attitude that you copped. And you've been convicted by. And it might be something devastating in your life. But it's all for the purpose of sanctifying you in one way, shape, or form. Our flesh would rather give in to temptation and defend ourselves rather than admit errors, admit sins. We have two things in that line right there. Two things available to inspire us to keep going. Grace in the present and glory in the future. That's it. Grace, it's yours, it's available in the present and glory in the future. That's why Peter says, now grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I just want to just bring this time to a conclusion to talk a little bit as we're just getting into the new year and tell you that Of all the wishes that a pastor could have, and I'm talking about myself, for the Christ followers of the church, the greatest wish is to see you genuinely grow in grace. That's my wish for you. 
Because I know that if you are growing in grace, you will be going deeper into your knowledge of Christ. I know that. Because that's what Peter says, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You'll grow closer to his church and understand the importance of the Lord's church and the value of fellowship. And you'll be more sensitive to the things of the Spirit of God. Personally, from a sanctification perspective, I find it good practice in my own life to look back on the year just completed. That's more important than the resolutions I make in the year to come. But I think we seriously cheat ourselves if we stop there, just looking back. The ability to actually witness godly change, which the sanctification process brings about in our lives, might, in fact, necessitate looking back several years, right? For me, personally, I get a better composite of myself when I look back three or four years. Now, on the other hand, now this is very important. I want you to listen. This is a personal word to you. The better look we have will almost always come from those who see us on a regular basis. In other words, somebody outside of ourselves, right? Sadly, our inherent pride We just don't see ourselves very objectively. Would you agree with that? I mean, mean, just just the other day, I I asked my wife. I said, honey, uh, how am I doing in cell group for talking too much? Now, mind you, I wouldn't ask that question unless I was really confident that I'd made some great strides along the way here. (laughs) And so when she's replied by saying, well, I think you're still talking too much. Oh. It was very discouraging. I mean, was she not observing? (laughs) Did she not see the, the many moments of vows of silence that I'd taken? Emphasis on moments. And didn't she realize that by affirming my question, she would be encouraging her husband? (laughs) Apparently not. (laughs) She understood that I genuinely was asking the question. And she wasn't really taking advantage of me, but she was... She, she knew that if I would receive this by grace, it would help me. It would lead to repentance. By the way, not all wives or your husband are able to look objectively. Some fear their spouse and just tell them whatever they want to hear. That's why I recommend talking to those, not just your wife, not just your husband, but I recommend not just your... Talk to people outside of yourself who have no motive for smoozing you, for schmoozing you. You are blessed if you have such people in your life. And doubly blessed if you humbly respond to them. 
if you have been confronted on a character flaw in your life and you find yourself running around looking for affirmation for what you already believe about yourself, you're probably guilty of the accusation. Mark it down. You need, listen, you need to go deeper, you need to go longer, and you need to more, go more humbly into your past. The Holy Spirit might, take, might need to take a little more time to sort of bring up some of that gunk. I want to give you a few guideposts for receiving necessary rebukes that will lead to sanctifying growth in your life and in mine. We need this stuff. And they're simple. Here's the first one, devotion. Devotion. Your time with God every day, early every day, every morning. Don't wait till night. Please don't wait till the night. Your day doesn't begin at night. You say, well, mine kind of does. Well, if it does, if you go to work at 11 o'clock at night, okay, whatever. Spend time soaking in the truth of God, not looking, not doing word studies and preparing lessons but letting the word of God reside over you. Amen? So it begins to speak to you. The grace of God can flow through you. There's grace in this book. And what that will do, it will sensitize you. It will sensitize you to receive hard words when necessary. Here's another one. Regular reality checks. Knowing that while you're in the flesh, you are given to sin. And do you agree with that? You keep that ever before your mind. Always keep that reality check before your mind. When's the last time you confessed your sin to somebody? When? When's the last time as a follower of Jesus, you told somebody, I sinned when I said that, when I did that, when I thought that. Will you please forgive me? Maybe you haven't been doing any reality checks. Here's a big one, and this, is, this next one is my, has been my passion for the past year or so. My wife and I have talked about this. Openness in the moment. Openness in the moment. That is the willingness to listen to God's Spirit when He's convicting you. That is a huge step towards personal sanctification. Your initial reaction when you're confronted will often reveal whether or not you're guilty. Are you defensive? That usually means you, listen to this, if you're defensive, that means you have chosen to serve yourself. If you're defensive, you have chosen to serve yourself. Whatever happened to the great vindicator above, amen? David said, God will vindicate me. Personally, now listen, personally, I have a desire to react in the moment by repenting on the spot if God convicts me. Now listen, I've not always done that. I don't always do that. Yet it is my heart's desire to do so. And because I have committed myself to the Lord that way, he's given me all kinds of opportunities to do so. (laughs) So recently I... I called a, a meeting of all the leadership in the Engage Network. That's four churches and a bunch of pastors. And I called, because something really exciting took place. And I just, you know, because, you know, you know, I get excited about things. 
I wanted to talk about this with the guys. And so I laid it all out, but one of them, one of the leaders was missing. And I could sense he was a little upset, so I called him up. And uh, I said, uh, what, you know, what's going on? Could, you couldn't make the meeting. And he said, Pat, he said, didn't we have an agreement? Didn't we have an unwritten agreement that we would never talk about things like this to the greater leadership until the head pastors got together and discussed them? And as he talked about it, my defense, my, my inner lawyer showed up. And, but, I didn't, but it didn't speak up, and I thank God for that. It showed up, but it didn't speak up. Because as he spoke, in the moment, I was completely convicted. And I said, you are so right. Uh, I should not have done that. Will you please forgive me? And I, he did, of course. And in fact, I asked the rest of them to forgive me, and they did. It was a beautiful thing. But I thanked the Lord that in the moment, I didn't let the lawyer within trump the lawyer from above, who is my advocate, right? Not to defend me, because I just got to bring those sins to the cross where they were paid for, right? One last thing, multiple witnesses. For you who struggle to see your sin or tend to gather people who will agree with your personal assessment of yourself, this is the most important guidepost. Jesus himself affirmed The power of multiple witnesses in Matthew 18. And if two or three or even more agree with your sin, stop. Stop defending yourself. Just agree with God and repent of your sin. And you will move on. You will be free. Free from serving yourself. Free from self-defending. Free from self-righteousness. And free to serve your true master. Well, we we can't close the book without looking at that last verse, huh? The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. If you have never recognized the plight that you're in, that the payment you're getting for all your sin will separate you from God forever. And if today your heart is like just really open weirdly, like God has just done something in your heart, respond to him. Obey wholeheartedly from your heart this form of doctrine that's being committed to you. Jesus Christ loves you. He died for you. He rose again for you. Place your faith in him and receive the free gift of God, which is eternal life. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Will you pray with me?